Thank you, Ryan, and thank you, everybody. Uh, Dean and I have really uh, enjoyed our conversations um, with many of you since we've been here. Um, those will continue, of course. And so what I want to do tonight is weave together, I've picked a bunch of poems and translations that sort of follow up on the conversation we've been having, individuals and with in the various groups I've met with. Um, so generally speaking, the poems that I'm going to read deal with the place and the ways in which um, translation and what we call original poetry uh, meet, the, kind of the place in which they meet, or the places, since they meet in many, many different ways, and the way in which, as we talked about on Friday uh, with the writers, um, the way in which I see translation uh, as a central human activity, as a part of a primary instinctual process, not as a kind of secondary activity uh, as it's usually uh, regarded. Um, so that's going to come to the fore. And I'm also going to try to pick things that somehow follow up on little sort of elements of converse, uh, the conversation we've been having uh, on other tangents. So, okay, can you hear me okay in the back? Is that, okay. Um, I'm going to read first from, as Ryan said, from things on which I've stumbled. And I'll start with a poem called Improvisation on Lines by Isaac the Blind. And this is a poem that begins in 13th century Provence. Isaac the Blind was a Kabbalist. Uh, one of the things I stumbled on in the course of writing this book was his writing and particular lines of his that struck me with uh, uh, considerable power, and in a certain sense, while the poem is an original poem, it's a translation of his perception from the 13th century, uh, from 13th century Provence into 21st century Jerusalem and 21st century English um, via a 16th century French form. Improvisation on Lines by Isaac the Blind. Only by sucking, not by knowing, can the subtle essence be conveyed. Sap of the word and the world's flowing that raises the scent on the almond blossoming and yellows the bulbul in the olive's shade. Only by sucking, not by knowing. The grass and oxalis by the pines growing are luminous in us, petal and blade. As sap of the word and the world's flowing, a flicker rising from embers glowing, light trapped in the tree's sweet braid of what it was sucking. Not by knowing is the amber honey of persimmon drawn in. An anemone piercing the clover persuades me. Sap of the word and the world's flowing across the sap of the word and the world is flowing across separation through wisdom's bestowing. And in that persuasion choices are made. But only by sucking, not by knowing that sap of the word 
through the world is flowing. And just um, lest you think I take myself too seriously, I did have a novelist friend in Jerusalem who, after he read that poem, asked if the fact of Isaac's being blind had anything to do with calling my book things on which I've stumbled. So, just to check if you're paying attention. Okay. A different kind of deep translation. Uh, as you know, Dean and I live in Jerusalem. We spend half our time in Jerusalem now, but I've lived there for the better part of 30 years. And um, we've seen ups, political ups and downs over the years, sort of really hopeful times, incredibly depressing times. Um, let's say over the last 10 years, we're particularly trying. And Israelis in general are kind of news, uh, are obsessed with the news. They listen to it all the time. They read papers all the time. Um, and we read the morning paper, um, you know, quite religiously. Uh, and Adina, especially my wife, um, responds to it very vocally uh, during breakfast when I really don't want to hear about it. And I start with the sports pages. Sports pages, some, you believe what it says in the sports pages, it actually happened. Whereas the rest, it's all a matter of interpretation. So uh, one morning she was just going on and said, you can't believe, do you see this, do you see this? And so, all right, I looked. And all kinds of horrors were being written about in the paper, the same there, there all the time, but these were really uh, quite shocking. And then, all right, I read that, I shuffled off to my study uh, on the other side of the apartment, and I was working on some medieval things, the kind of things I'll read you one or two of tonight. And these are thing, poems that while they incorporate a lot of Arabic elements, they're also based, they, they work, they're based on biblical vocabulary. So in order to translate these poems, I have to spend a lot of time before I translate them kind of checking out, doing a kind of archaeological dig as to the biblical substratum of all, all these poems, because I don't know the Bible by heart, um, and make sure I understand where all this stuff is coming from. Even if I want to ignore it, I have to at least know where it's coming from. So. As this morning, that particular morning when I got to work translating and looking things up in the Bible, the first thing I looked up in the book of Deuteronomy just took the top of my head off, as Emily Dickinson said a poem should do, except this was just a verse from the Bible. And what it seemed to me to be was a precise and utterly relevant commentary on what I had just read in the paper. The verse there, it just seemed like Somebody had played a trick on me and put this in front of me to show how these two things came together. And so I kept reading and every verse in that particular chapter seemed to be kind of the ultimate commentary on the day's news. And that kind of that impression, that sort of experience stayed with me and kind of formed itself very quickly into a poem. Uh, I call the poem Coexistence, a lost and almost, I see Olivia here, the master of uh, found art. This is a lost and almost found poem, as if the world simply turned this poem up in this kind of um, slightly spooky coincidence of texts. So the poem is made up on the one hand from actual facts from the newspaper on that particular morning, and the actual verses I encountered 10 minutes later in my study uh, working on something else altogether. The biblical things are pretty much as I found them. The facts, I've manipulated the language a little bit from the newspaper, but every, the facts are still facts. Coexistence, a lost and almost found poem. 
And the Levites, has an epigraph, and the Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice. Over the border the barrier winds, devouring orchards of various kinds. Cursed be he that taketh away the landmark of his neighbor, and all the people shall say, Amen. The road was blocked in a battle of wills, as the lame and sightless trudged through the hills. Cursed be he that maketh the blind to go astray in the way, and all the people shall say, Amen. The army has nearly written a poem. You'll now need a permit just to stay home. Cursed be he that perverteth the justice due to the stranger in Scripture, and all the people shall say amen, taken away in the dead of night by the secret policeman who might be a Levite. Cursed be he that turneth to smite his neighbor in secret murder, and all the people shall say amen, as peace is sought through depredation, living together in separation. Cursed be he that confirmeth not the words of this law to do them. And all the people shall say, Amen. So, having, um, having dissed Adina in the comments of that poem, I will now read a Valentine's Day poem uh, to her. Uh, this is called Valent Lines for A. And um, it's basically a poem about love and work, which is to say, about uh, poesis and linkage. You know, there's that thing where Freud supposedly said something about the two goals of psychoanalysis or the goals of sort of a, a well-balanced person are to love and to work. Uh, I know somebody who's actually writing a book about that and said, in fact, he can't find anywhere where Freud actually said that, but it sounds good. Valent lines per A. And one of the things that's come up in a lot of the conversations with, um, with people here is sort of the way, ways in which form works. And so this is a poem in which I sort of create the form. Um, it's made up of four short poems of sort of tightly interlocking lines because it's a poem, as you'll see, about this kind of interlinkage of relationship. What law and power has blessed me so? that in this provocation of flesh, I have been wedded to gentleness. Delicacy of an intricate mesh of our thought and meals and talking has brought me to this exaltation of syllables and a speechlessness, to December dusk and desk and skin in the amber of our listening, Dawn again pink with munificence, heart again blurred by its ignorance. Toward you in that equation I turn, and you in turn involve our being spun like wool from which soul is weaving a use for that useless opulence. Doing and making. The end served by what it is we make and what we do is what has made me making in you. And this is, uh, I'll read uh, some selections from a, a sequence called Notes on Bewilderment 
And um, it's also something that's come up in my talk on Friday of one of the strategies I like to employ in poetry is simply when I don't understand something, I simply try to burrow into it as much as possible. And having done that repeatedly or several times in several books and with different topics, um, it occurred to me that not understanding was one of those things I didn't completely understand. And I should also burrow into this notion of confusion. Why is confusion so interesting? Um, and Saul so I ran into, stumbled on something that Saul Bellow said at one point. He called confusion the open channel to the soul that, he referred to the open channel to the soul that runs through confusion and the need to, quote, keep that channel open to have access to the deepest part of ourselves. So this is very much, this is a poem called Notes on Bewilderment. And the sort of operative principle here was I wanted to keep the poetic lens, as it were. If the poem is a camera, I wanted to keep it open, this kind of long-term exposure for a period of several months and just try somehow to let things as if it might, the poem was some kind of giant sea creature. Whatever happened to flow into it, in the course of my life over that month, I developed a form that would somehow trap what was really important to me. And so this is just a couple of selections from that. Um, in terms of the deep translation that I'm talking about, you'll hear all different things, things that I'm reading. I'm not particularly interested in, uh, in striking visual images or anything. I'm interested in the, the flow of thought, of thought, the kind of discourse of thought. And so this one actually begins with something, a very famous line um, from Kohelet from the book of Ecclesiastes, and again tries to translate that into my present. All the rivers, it's getting somehow truer and truer. Run into the sea which is never full, said Kohelet the preacher. Combining in lines as close to a sigh as any might be, pointlessness and splendor. Thus the call for clarity, the lover's creed. Things heard as though within one, but suddenly freed by others' words, nothing's original, not even sin. The mild wind now blowing may be wisdom, bringing someone what he needs. Lord goes the prayer, increase my bewilderment which really means allow me to question everything, but not be lost within that stance to the small flowers of common sense and season. Increase, Lord, my discontent, but keep me from resentment. Reason as well has its season, although we don't believe it or put too much faith in it. It's true that one and one on occasion is three or more, and the middle way is often mystical. Lord goes the prayer, keep me from delusion, which really means allow my mind to open to all that comes my way without bringing ruin upon me through fusion of things that are distinct at heart. Keep me from conclusion while the case is being made and the world is all that is the case. Keep me from too much seclusion, increase my confusion with thee, it says. But is that, in fact, another matter, I wondered, as the dervishes world? 
And may my love and language lead me into that perplexity and that simplicity, altering what I might otherwise be. But let it happen through speech's clarity as normal magic which certain words renew. So just one more from um, this book. And it's the last poem in the book, and it is, it's called the Razzle or Guzzle, uh, as American poets pronounce it, of what hurt. Guzzle is a Persian word, a Persian form. And um, there's a note in the book that says it's an ode to titanium training and translation. And so I just, it's a, this is a poetry reading, like you can say a little bit for backstory, we're all in this uh, here as creative artists of one sort or another. So just to give you a sense of the backstory of this um, where, and where poems come from, uh, for the past 15 or maybe 20 years, whatever, I've had a sort of debilitating kind of arthritis. And for quite a while, I had, I walked with canes, two canes, and, you know, racked with pain. Some of us know what that stuff is like. And um, lo and behold, when I was 40, doctors said I had to have a hip replaced, or a 45, I think it was, no, 40. And I was shocked. A hip replacement? I had never heard of a hip replacement. It just seemed like uh, the limb amputated or something. Um, and I had the first hip replaced, and that was great. I could walk again. And then the second hip went, and that was very painful for many years, and I had the second hip replaced. And when that healed, and for the first time in 10 years, I suddenly one day just walked normally down the street, it was this unbelievable sense of just, you know, euphoria and sort of ease and naturalness, which was connected to poetry because I used to write all my poems while walking. And when I couldn't walk anymore, I became a translator. <laughs> um, and so I was struck by the fact that it was this artificial thing in me from outside something from outside had been implanted in me that made me natural, which is sort of what happens for a translator. And so I tried to write about, I just tried to write about that one little feeling I had walking down the street and tried to account for that. And so basically everything in this poem is true on a literal level, but as with the Persian guzzle form, which is often involved in the product of a mystical body of literature, a sort of allegorical dimension also develops in the poem. The Guzzle of What Hurt. Pain froze you for years and fear leaving scars. But now as though miraculously it seems, here you are. Walking easily across the ground and into town as though you were floating on air, which in part you are, or riding a wave of what feels like the world's goodwill, though helped along by something foreign and older than you are, and yet much younger too inside you, and so palpable in x-ray you're sure would show it within the body you are, not all that far beneath the skin and even in some bones, making you wonder, are you what you are? with all that isn't actually you having flowed through and settled in you and made you what you are. The pain was never replaced, nor was it quite erased. It's memory now, so you know just how lucky you are 
You didn't always. Were you then? And where's the fear inside your words like an engine? The car you are? Face it, friend. You most exist when you're driven away or on by forms and forces greater than you are. So what I want to do at this point is turn to some of those forms and forces. Well, you've already heard some of the forms that are greater than I am. Uh, I want to show you, uh, give you an example of a few of the forces and poets uh, that are greater uh, than I am and read you um, three translations, uh, str straighter translations, in other words, not this kind of deep translation I'm talking about. First is from the 11th century uh, by a man named Samuel or Shmuel Hanagid. Um, there's lots I can, he was an incredible figure, I don't want to get into all that, but this is, is an example of the, the poetry I was talking about earlier that was written by Jews in Hebrew in Muslim-controlled Spain, Muslim-ruled Spain in the 11th century. It's every word in the Hebrew comes from the Bible, but the poetic forms are entirely Arabic. And in fact, it's often considered a branch of Arabic literature. It's such an Arabized kind of verse. And it's a verse that uh, brought about a kind of revolution in Hebrew and in Jewish sensibility, a revolution of letters, but also of culture, and at the time was considered uh, very subversive and a threat to the, the body politic. Uh, but this poem, so the, the poem in Hebrew itself is a kind of translation from Arabic, a deep translation. It also comes from a book of this poet's called After Ecclesiastes. In other words, he took the thrust of the biblical book of Ecclesiastes and wrote poems on the themes from that book, but in a completely free way. There's absolutely nothing reverential about these poets. They're often incredibly bawdy and sarcastic. They're simply using the materials of the Bible to serve them in any way that they think is necessary. So in this poem, it ends with a line uh, from Ecclesiastes. I'm not going to tell you which. You don't even need to. You don't need to know any of this. It's just interesting when you hear this that behind it all is a kind of push from the Bible. And in fact, what he says is completely at odds with a lot that's in the Bible. So it's about a Middle Eastern market. I just call it the market. Um, the same kind of market. Anybody who travels in the Middle East today, you still see essentially medieval markets. And this is what he's writing about. I crossed through a market where butchers hung oxen and sheep side by side. There were birds and herds of fatlings like squid, their terror loud as blood congealed over blood and slaughterers' knives opened veins. In booths alongside them, the fishmongers and fish in heaps and tackle like sand. And beside them, the street of the bakers, whose ovens are fired through dawn. They bake, they eat, they lead their prey, they split what's left to bring home. And my heart understood how it happened and asked, who are you to survive? What separates you from these beasts, which were born and knew waking and labor and rest? If they hadn't been given by God for your meals, they'd be free. If he wanted this instant, he'd easily put you in their place. They've breath like you and hearts, which scatter them over the earth. There was never a time when the living didn't die, nor the young that they bear not give birth. 
Pay attention to this, you pure ones, and princes so calm in your fame. Know if you'd fathom the worlds of the hidden. This is the whole of man. And of course, Hanagid, the you in this poem, he's addressing himself. He himself was a prince. He was the, the ruler of the Muslim state of Granada in the 11th century. So when he's talking, he's, the you is everybody else, but it's very much also him. Okay, speaking of yous, which will also come back later, um, we'll jump ahead to a different kind of translation that I've done. I also, uh, on Friday, talked briefly about a book that came out last year uh, called The Poetry of Kabbalah of Kabbalah. Uh, it's a collection of mystical verse from the Jewish tradition, um, beginning in late antiquity and moving up to the early 20th century. Just read you one poem uh, from that. It's called The Song of You, and it's a Hasidic poem. It's actually from Yiddish, which I don't read, so I did this by listening to the Yiddish, but there's lots of Hebrew in it, and in fact, it incorporates lines of medieval Hebrew poetry of the sort that I just read you. So again, you have this kind of layered translation. And the idea with Hasidism is that it's mysticism for, well, Adam Zagievsky was here a little while ago. He write, has a famous book called Mysticism for Beginners. Hasidism is about, is a kind of pantheistic version of Judaism, and it's about making mysticism simple and direct and understandable by everybody. So this is a kind of expression of that. Lord of the world, Lord of the world, Lord of the world, I'll sing you a little song of you. You, you, you. Where will I find you? And where won't I find you? So here I go, you, and there I go, you. Always you, however you, only you, and ever you. You, you, you. You, you, east you, west you, north you, south you, 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 the heavens you, earth you, on high you and below, in every direction and every inflection, still you, however you, only you, ever you, 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 you. And one more translation, um, again, straight translation. This is actually from my new book, The Invention of Influence. It's also from an old book. It's in the book that Adina and I wrote together, Sacred Trash. Um, and again, it involves a kind of translation of a deep translation. This is a poem from sixth century Palestine by a Hebrew poet. Um, it's a poet that was rediscovered Almost all of his poems, except for one, were lost until the 20th century. And it's, he, he now we have something like 800 poems by him. And he was a religious poet um, who wrote for the synagogue. And the way these poets w would work is that they would take, um, it's a bit like Bach at Leipzig. Every Sunday, he would have to compose a new cantata, a new piece for the church, for the congregation. And the congregation would come and say, let's see what our composer has got for us this week. That was a big draw. So poetry was the main sort of art form in those days. And the congregations would come, if you, especially if you had a great poet, to see what would the poet write for us 
this weekend, right? This, this Saturday or Friday, this would be for Saturday or for the holidays. And what they would do is the, every in, in synagogue life, you read the, the Bible, the Torah in different portions every week. And the poet's job would then be to compose a long sort of Bach-like poem based on the portion of the Bible that was read that week. Right? And at the beginning, this was actually in place of regular prayer. There was no regular prayer in the synagogue. You would read the Bible, and then the poet would go to it. And it would be, new, you know, talk about making it new. And that's actually an injunction in the Talmud that you have to make your, your prayer new all the time. So they took it kind of literally, sort of amazing position that the poet was in. So this particular portion that they were reading this week was the story of the burning bush on Mount Sinai. Everybody knows that. And... Um, the verse in particular that triggered this poem is, and the angel of the Lord was revealed to him, to Moses, in the heart of the flame. And um, the poets also had very sort of, it was sort of like uh, Olympic ice skating, where, you know, I don't, they actually cut, I think they changed the rules now, but you used to have to do figure eights. There were compulsory things that you had to do. There were a lot of compulsory things that the poet has to do. In section number four of the poem, it has to be this kind of rhyme. In section five, there has to be an acrostic. And in section six, the acrostic will have his name in it. So you'll know who wrote this poem, right, without it being too big a deal because it's a religious poem. All right, so in this particular section, it's a section seven of this serial poem, where the poet gets to sort of strut his stuff. And in this case, he, one of the ways he does it is with an alphabetical acrostic. And um, so it's an Aleph bet, and I kept the acrostic ABC. That means I had to add a couple of lines, but it's all right. I took the lines responsibly from traditional sources. And um, the basic thrust is that, or what you could take from this, is that the poet, as the poet sees it, Moses is seeing the alphabet in the burning bush, in the bush, in the flame, and so it's the alphabet that's never consumed. All right, so this is the way it happens. Angel of fire devouring fire, fire blazing through damp and dryer, fire candescent in smoke and snow, fire drawn like a crouching lion, fire, fire evolving through shade after shade, fateful fire that will not expire, gleaming fire that wanders far, hissing fire that sends up sparks, fire infusing a swirling gale, fire that jolts to life without fuel, fire that's kindled and kindles daily, lambent fire and fanned by fire, miraculous fire flashing through fronds, notions of fire like lightning on high, omens of fire in the chariot's wind, pillars of fire and thunder and storm, quarries of fire wrapped in a fog, raging fire that reaches Sheol, terrible fire that ushers in cold, fire's vortex like a wilderness crow, fire extending and yet like a rainbow zone of color arching through sky. So, <laughs> thank you. That's what, you know, and that was in the synagogue, right? So, how the mighty have fallen, right? You go to synagogue now, that's not what you're going to hear. On being partial, as in part and also being partial to something. I'm partial to what's possible, he thought. Not the ineffable. Distant, devoid of insistence and temperament that tampers or tramples. Not the impersonal, but that which hovers here between the eye of the opening and the us of your possible listening now. Or in the imperfect tense intention of what in fact articulates the eternal. That abstract revelation and slippery duration to which it seems I'm given 
and because of which I'm never finished with anything, as though living itself were an endless translation. Actual angels. So you notice a couple of angels have already crept up in, this, uh, in the reading, and that's one of those things that I thought I should look into. As I was working on all this mystical literature, I'm, you know, a secular person by, at least appeared to be a secular person. By Israeli standards, I'm a secular person. I don't cover my head, I don't go to synagogue, all these things. Um, but I am drawn to this religious literature all the time and spend a lot of time translating mystical literature, which has meant a great deal to me. And I noticed, you know, what happened whenever angels were mentioned in this literature? On the one hand, it's sort of like when people start to talk about translation. I get very interested. Um, on the other hand, do I really believe in angels? And then the, what the mystical literature does with angels is sometimes so annoying. It's just so utterly incomprehensible and ridiculous. But I keep going back for more. So I decided I wanted to sort of press on that bewilderment a little bit and see, well, what is it about this notion of angels that interests me. What's going on there? And of course, I'm not alone. Everybody's interested in angels at some level, right? So I think next to books about cats, they're probably the most books about angels published. Um, so just one thing that's helpful to know, you don't need to know it, but in Hebrew, the word for angel is malach, which in biblical Hebrew just means messenger. And so in biblical Hebrew, you're never sure when it says malach, does it mean a person who's a messenger? Or does it mean a messenger of God, which is to say an angel? So the epigraph to this poem is, and Jacob sent messengers, right, when he's sending it um, to Esau. And one of the commentators of the Bible says, actual angels, just so everybody will know. So I'll read you just a few of these. One, are angels evasions of actuality, bright denials of our mortality? Or more like letters linking words to worlds these heralds help us see. It's the freighted angels that elevate. Opaque with their burdens, they wait for someone to sense what's there between until they're released to the weather again. Gone is the griffin, the phoenix, the fawn. Only angels in the poem live on. As characters catching the light between things, as carriers of currents from the wings of thinking we know where we're going and then getting somewhere, despite our intention. Maybe an angel's confused with an angle, so often because the slip lays bare, something these envoys are trying to tell us that what we're missing is already there. The light off of the sound this morning is like the sound of the morning's light. A high-pitched, crisp, silvery ping, though not of burnished wings, touching. Angels also act like classics, tilting us toward the oddly real, as with the crust of their reputation they block off access to it as well. How is it that creatures with names like Anaphiel, Shaq de Huzia, Asbuga, 
in Geophiel could possess the power to raise a person up to a temple within from his hell. Angels are letters, said Abulafia, in us like mind as the presence hum. No one knows what a year will bring, but the world to come is the word to come. Just a couple more from this book, and I'll finish. Um, on Friday, when we were talking about the genesis of this long poem that became the title poem of my new book, The Invention of Influence, I mentioned that, again, following out one's curiosity, just how important it is to really push and follow it out. And I mentioned that this entire poem, which is about, for those of you who aren't there, just very quickly, is about a very gifted disciple of Freud in the first two, basically between 1910 and 1919, um, who killed himself but wrote some incredibly powerful things about schizophrenia and about something called the influence machine. How schizophrenics, like the guy who shot up everybody in the naval yard uh, a couple of weeks ago, said that he was controlled by the microwaves, right? Uh, how this notion he sort of wrote very beautifully about that and understood it with kind of real sympathy. And I was writing about that as a kind of metaphor for the way the writer works as a kind of medium. And I mentioned that that whole thing got triggered with a poem about my mother's paranoia. And um, so I want to read you that poem. It's a short poem. Um, my mother and I didn't... First of all, I can't believe I'm reading a poem about my mother in public. I never in my entire life ever wrote about my mother or my father. It's just one of those things I thought, let other poets do that kind of thing. Um, my mother and I did not get along most of our lives. Um, curiously enough, it was only towards the end of her life, uh, as her mind began to fray, she had dementia, and she had paranoia, you know, most of her life to some level. But in the dementia, as those of you who have dealt with dementia know, it gets very violent. And as it started to get really bad, curiously enough, that's when we became really close. And in some way, as a translator, I had the sort of patience or whatever. I was the only person she trusted most of the time until she would turn on me. Um, and part of, I think, the sympathy that was involved there wasn't just that I was a translator. It's that as several of my uh, long-term friends have gently pointed out to me over the course of my life, uh, I'm not exactly immune to some of those tendencies. So I recognize some of that, and I wanted to sort of go into that sympathy and that what was going on with her. Paranoia, a primer. The paranoid parses all she hears until it sounds like what she fears. She fears what's always about to be said, and so her fear is endlessly fed. Around her head, a ha like a halo, it hovers, a nimbus of hatred of self that smothers others as well in the smog of its knowing, but knowing is never what's really going on, and so on, and on it goes, further and further from what love does. She ponders the sea of poisonous thoughts that teach not a thing, but can be taught. Within the whirlpool of her mind, she's caught as life is left behind. Like a swimmer swept out on a sea, swept out to sea on a tide, which holds that nothing she's had to hide. 
loom loud through the warp of her soul, set in a room beyond her control, and behind what anyone said everywhere, such were the fruits of her despair, the choreography of her defense against the contraptions of influence, the strings pulled as though from afar, jerking the puppets that we are. The perfect state. The perfect state of being human isn't perfection. It's becoming, the Greeks say, ever more real in nearing but never quite reaching a certain ideal. Like translation, it's deficient, a chronic affection. Perfection doesn't entail a return to a wholeness where one never yearns. As female is fused to male back to back, perfection's in facing what we lack. A person approaches her perfect nature and becomes herself in the truest sense by acceding at times to the angel within her, its flitting presence, her only defense against perfection's petrifaction, suggests Avicenna's celestial ascent, pun intended, as subtraction leads her to more than she ever meant. And I think I will... I'll read two more poems. Um, so I want to acknowledge a couple of people in the audience today who drove quite far to get here. Uh, I'm talking a lot about translation, and David Hinton is here. Some of you might know we were talking. Uh, Mindy, we were talking. There's Mindy over there, David. Uh, David is one of the great translators of classical Chinese poetry, uh, among other things. Um, and uh, two of my teachers from college, uh, Barry and Laurie Goldenson, are here. And I mention that now because I'm going to read a poem about sort of the vocation of poetry and sort of what it feels like. We've also talked about this quite a bit, how it is that after you've finished a project, a book, or if you're a poet, maybe any poem, you feel like that's it. You're done. You'll never, ever do anything again. And you have the terror of what is going to come next. And so you question, you know, what you're actually, what it's all about. What are you doing in those studios up there all the time? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and I learned many wonderful things from Barry and Laurie, talking about the influence of many, influ influence in many, many ways. Um, but there is one story that I've never told them. I'm going to embarrass them with this story now that did influence me. It was kind of accidental influence. And this was in my senior year of college. And I wrote a poem I was really excited about, and I gave it to them separately. And um, they gave, you know, this before email, so they, you know, longhand gave me comments, and they gave them back separately. And one of them, and I actually truly can't remember which one said which, um, but one of them said, this is the best thing you've ever written. You, this should be published right away. And the other said, this poem is so embarrassingly bad, you should put it in a drawer. No, you should burn it immediately. <laughs> and, you know, I was 21 years old, and I thought, hmm, okay. <laughs> Either they conspired at home and thought, 
let's, let's have a little fun with this student who thinks he's so good or whatever. Let's see if he can, what he's going to do with this <laughs> or else, in fact, I was truly on my own and had to make up my own mind about these things and the latter being the case. Uh, so this is a poem called Quatrains for a Calling and it's a kind of nasty little poem at some level um, and it's in the second person. And as I said, we've, I've had several poems about you, Hanagid's poem was about you. So I just want to point out that when this, this was written originally in the second person, but from the beginning, the you was me. Why are you here? What have you come for? And what would you gain? Where is your fear? Why are you here? You've come so near, or so it would seem. You can see the grain in the paper, that's clear. But why are you here when you could be elsewhere, earning a living or actually learning? Why should we care why you're here? Is that a tear? Yes, there's pressure behind the eyes, and there are peers. But why are you here? At times it sears the pressure and shame and the echoing pain. What do you hear now that you're here? The air's so severe. It calls for equipment, which comes at a price. And you volunteered. Why? Are you here? What will you wear? What will you do if it turns out you failed? How will you fare? Why are you here when it could take years to find out what? It's all so slippery. It may not cohere. And yet, you're here. Is it what you revere? How deep does that go? How do you know? Do you think you're a seer? Is that why you're here? Do you have a good ear? For praise or for verse? Can you handle a curse? Define persevere. Why are you here? It could be a career. And the last one I want to read um, is a poem called, it's called What Is? It's the last poem in this new book. And Dean and I were lucky enough, we found a, an amazing apartment in New Haven, um, right across the street from, I think, we think one of the great parks in America. Um, and we live on the third floor, so we have an incredible view. And every day, all day, all year, watching this park change is just an incredible thing. And it's true, we're only in New Haven six months of the year, but the first year we bought the apartment, we stayed for the whole year so we could watch the park change. Um, and so this poem was written over, I actually had the sense early on that I wanted to write about this, but we also have talked about this, waiting for the right moment to write. When do you know you should start writing? When is it too soon? When is it too late? And sort of just intuiting that and feeling it out and getting it right sometimes and wrong sometimes. Um, so I had this feeling very, very early that there was something structurally about this park and centrally about it that I wanted to write about. I wasn't sure what it would be. At the same time, while all this was taking place, um, the person, the woman who, a dear friend of ours, who had brought us to that neighborhood and was the reason we were living in that neighborhood because she lived there, um, she had had cancer and she went into remission. And then she fell out of remission. While all this was sort of registering on me, she died a year ago uh, next week. And um, so the poem has all that in it, and then in a kind of subliminal way, and this is the kind of translational dim uh, dimension to it, it also encodes uh, a Kabbalistic vision of the 
And the Kabbalists have a kind of structure for the way they think the universe is, sort of what the architecture of the universe is. I'm not going to go into it all. It's all incredibly complicated. But also wanting to understand that complication and translate it into something grounded and concrete was the kind of secret challenge for me as a poet in this one. So that stuff is sort of smuggled in. Just throw that out there. So what is? The Norway may... <coughs> The Norway maple's chartreuse crown In April's cyphers, autumn's flares Startling with mace-like spikelets of flowers Swelling over the pass of that square Where we wander adrift in the branching Or is it what's branching adrift in us? Wafted as if afloat on a wisdom Flowing through this city forest The grid encodes in understanding those who stroll past tines of elms, who weigh the shade of summer's linden and trace the mottled bark of plains, move as though of their own accord, but under invisible gates of a grace, born in their being born along or gradually dying to the spell of the place where dogs are walked and judgment is rendered and power as weakness brings down limbs, where mercy's continual of vermin is tendered and children at recess dart into rings where a woman's will surges through her sitting alone alone in the rinse of her cancer as the vapor of chatters released to the air, all part of the terrible splendor. The weeping cherry shedding petals like snow in an ancient ocular rhyme. The sight, of course, is a sight of convention, the tiniest of triumphs over time. And yet, somehow, the saraband combines as majesty, the rupture and gentle carriage of kindness, the wind's extended winding kiss, the almost now actual, a marriage, not so much of opposites as, say, analogous aspects, exits to entrances, or attics holding an axial weave of sound's foundation, the praxis Perfecting opens into an instant's happiness, putting us back in the business of funneling the whole shebang, which Kabbalists have given a name. What is? Thank you.